Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, our archive presentation reaches the science portion of the first reality show episode, originally published in 2019. Having chewed through all of the issues that philosophers have raised with regard to reality, you might think that we'd be on firmer ground with the scientists. But as we'll learn, the more science studies what we think of as reality, the more it determines that none of it is what we think it is. As always, we recommend you start with the first three archive episodes and move forward from there, or dial back to the original full-length version available right now in the feed, should you wish to consume this whole thing at once. Our That's Not Canon sister show promo for this week concerns the podcast Faunication, which not only has a great title, but an even greater logo, depicting two bunny rabbit silhouettes caught in flagrante delicto. That clever title, which is easier to understand in written than audio form, combines the term for the animal kingdom, that is, fauna, with fornication, from the original Latin Californication, defined as sweaty post-X-Files Duchovny premium cable sex series. What the Phonication podcast is about is giving you a short, deep dive into the most interesting things about one particular animal species, and, as you might guess based on the title, how that species bones down, how they ride the train to pound town, how they get it the fuck on. Link to the show is in our show notes, of course. Now, let us blind you with science! We've gotten an overview of philosophers tackling these concepts, but you know how these weirdos can get. Now it's time for some reassuring information from those stolid, boring, lab coat-bedecked, reliable purveyors of sane, unchanging data, scientists. Uh-oh. Yeah. It turns out that bit you just heard from Watts about reality being wiggly it's far more true in science than you might ideally prefer. Going back to our original problem, we're apparently conscious minds living in discrete physical bodies in a physical world. But aside from medicine, and especially neurology, most sciences haven't traditionally been particularly concerned about the niceties of how exactly our minds work, or how we are able to apprehend the world in the first place. Since the Copernican Revolution, when the mental heavyweights stopped parroting ancient wisdom received from Aristotle in the Catholic Church, and started backing an empirical, evidence-based approach to gaining progressive knowledge of the physical world, scientists from Galileo to Newton began using hypotheses, increasingly accurate measurements, and testable theories to make the world more intelligible. They had an unprecedented, completely amazing success rate. Up through the mid-19th century, everything in the sciences seemed to be converging into a clear, rational picture of a highly mechanistic, almost clockwork universe, where a few simple, albeit brilliant insights like Newton's laws of motion and Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism, 
were on the verge of making everything in the past and future of the material cosmos completely predictable. In other words, there was a widespread belief among scientists that if we could ever gain sufficient knowledge of the position and motion of all of the matter in the universe at a specific time, we would be able to completely predict everything that would ever happen in the future, at least in principle. But then shit went and got super weird. Professor Stephen Gimbel has a great courses series on this topic called Redefining Reality, and we strongly recommend it if you're interested in the ways that the last century and a half has, in a sense, been one of ever-increasing strangeness in basically every major scientific discipline. There are too many examples to cover here, but let's just consider mathematics and geometry for a moment. Gimbel explains how 19th century mathematicians were perplexed by their inability to derive the fifth postulate of Euclid's geometry. Briefly, that lines passing through two different points that are not parallel will eventually intersect. They kept at it, though, seeking to perfect this ancient and incredibly beautiful system. They failed, but in the attempt, they very cleverly and completely inadvertently managed to derive entirely new geometries that were consistent with the fifth postulate, but not the original four. Worse, these geometries were just as valid as the one Euclid had constructed, given slightly different starting assumptions. Meaning that it was entirely possible to construct an elaborate geometry that looked nothing like the rules that we had used to build our understanding of the real world. Then, in 1931, in the wake of philosopher and mathematician Bertrand Russell's majestic attempt to construct a complete proof for mathematics, Another math genius named Kurt Gödel threw everything into an even bigger kerfuffle, not only blowing a hole in Russell's beautiful edifice, but in doing so proving that he would be able to do the same with any other sufficiently complex system. Yet again, we're way above our pay grade here, but the way we understand it from a variety of sources, including Douglas Hofstadter's math, music, and computer science classic Gödel Escher Bach, Gödel's discovery meant that it would always be possible in any complex system to construct a statement that was essentially paradoxical. He proved, in essence, that it's always within the mathematical realm of possibility to create the equivalent of, this statement is false. That is, a statement that, if true, proves its falsity, and if false, proves that it is true. In other words, a statement that will always produce an absurd result. As we indicated earlier, this is only the first of many similar crises in science that, overall, as Dr. Gimbel puts it, gradually teach us that what we assumed are individual separate and specific concepts eventually are seen as part of a much grander, more complex, and harder-to-comprehend web of interdependencies. The undisputed winner of the Weird Scientific Developments of the 20th Century Award is, of course, the study of reality at its most basic, physics. The 20th century revolution in this science kicked off when a patent clerk spent the year 1905 proving, among several other things, that Isaac Newton, still perhaps the most brilliant scientist the world has yet known, got a bunch of stuff wrong about stars, planets, galaxies, and motion in the most unexpected ways. Later, he and a bunch of other smarty pantses went on to prove that at the smallest scales, the entire universe is absolutely, positively the weirdest fucking thing that anyone has ever imagined. It's not in any way an exaggeration to say that we are still dealing with the repercussions of these discoveries in terms of how we piece together our view of reality. First, let's gloss over the astonishing insights from the guy with the crazy hair, Einstein, starting with his miracle year of 1905. When, in addition to his special theory of relativity, he also revolutionized the understanding of light, the motion of atoms, the relationship of space and time, and the equivalence of mass and energy and ending with the year 1915, when he introduced his general theory of relativity. In this time, he rewrote all the rules governing how stuff in the universe interacts. Among many, 
many other important and deeply unsettling things, Einstein proved the following. One. That there's no such thing as a universal ether that everything moves through. Newton had suggested this hypothetical substance in order to explain both how light and gravity propagated themselves through space, and as the background against which the absolute motion of everything in space could be measured. Einstein did away with the whole thing, which people had been arguing about for a couple centuries. Two. While we're at it, there's no such thing as absolute motion in the universe, as Newton and most everybody else had previously presumed. Instead, you can only measure the motion of an object with regard to another object. Three. Also, there's no such thing as space, or time. Or, more accurately, the two are inextricably bound together in a single concept called space-time. Four. No, we're not kidding. They're really kind of the same thing, as in the faster you go through space, the slower you move through time. By the way, feel free to doubt this. Physicists apparently receive thousands of supposed refutations from amateur Einstein skeptics every year, but every single measurement we've ever made since the theory was proposed has proved its reliability. Five. But don't worry, there is an official speed limit in the universe. It's the speed of light. Why? I have no fucking idea, but it apparently makes sense to the physicists. Regardless, you can't go faster than light. It's literally baked into the structure of the universe. Six. And if you're traveling at 1,000 miles per hour in the same direction as a beam of light, it travels 186,000 miles per second ahead of you. But if you're traveling 100,000 miles per second along the same route, it still moves faster than you at 186,000 miles per second. And if you're going 100,000 miles per second in the opposite direction, that same beam of light still goes 186,000 miles per second relative to you. Fuck you! That's why! Cause fuck you! That's why! It's a real mindfuck. Seven? What else? You need more? Okay, assholes, gravity is actually a curvature of space. It's like a 3D version of what happens when you roll a ball in a circle on a trampoline with your fat uncle in the middle, and the ball tends to want to fall toward the center. And it turns out that if an object of sufficient mass collapses on itself... Not your uncle. Like, say, a star three or more times as large as our sun. Then that mass will cause it to collapse completely, creating an area of space in which gravity is so intense that even light, that scofflaw of speed, can't escape. It's almost... Like a hole in space that's super dark. Like, so dark is the opposite of white. Somebody should come up with a good name for that. Eight? Also, it turns out that you can turn matter into energy. This one yielded the cogito ergo sum of physics equations, E equals mc squared, and even more impactfully, paved the way for nuclear weapons. Nine? Oh, and as a bonus, it turns out Einstein's theory indicated the universe, instead of being infinitely old and of a stable size, would most likely be expanding or collapsing. BT dubs, E-Man hated the fuck out of this last idea, and in fact created a whoopsie factor he called the cosmological constant, so that his theory would result in the steady-state universe everyone expected. But later observations ended up proving that, in spite of Einstein's own doubts, the universe was actually expanding at an increasingly rapid rate, leading directly to the theory and observations that would establish its origins in a Big Bang 14 billion years ago. There's much more, but we think that's enough mind-blowing for one unqualified host channeling a brilliant physicist to lay on a podcast audience. Seriously, think about how unexpected, how counter to the way we observe the world working, that these conclusions are. Space is curved, and in fact can get so curved sometimes that not even light can escape? Traveling faster makes time move slower? And, incidentally, increases your inertia? 
Literally nothing can go faster than light, no matter what, and it isn't a matter of applying more energy, it's just written into the structure of the universe? You can turn ordinary matter into energy, and in fact doing so produces an astonishing amount of the latter from a few grams of the former? And that's part of the reason why the sun shines? Many of us have heard some or all of these things, but imagine how weird they were for people who were raised in a world where they expected the ongoing progress of science to render the universe ever more explicable. Einstein threw a permanent monkey wrench into that expectation. But what came next was vastly, almost unimaginably, more fucked up. Because what came next is quantum mechanics. There's a lovely quote attributed to super genius quantum theorist Richard Feynman, and it goes something like this. If you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. As perfectly phrased as that is, it's actually a later gloss on what the man actually said. In relating quantum theory to relativity, then the standard bearer for esoteric scientific theories, Feynman implied that a bunch of people understood relativity, but, and here's the actual quote, On the other hand, I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. Quantum founding father Niels Bohr expressed a similar sentiment, which Dana will... Wait. Holy living fuck, Bohr was Danish. You know what that means? Dana Unicorn finally gets to say something that sounds normal in her native accent. Yay. Well, I'm excited. Unicorn, take it away. Hvis man kan sætte sig ind i kvantemekanik uden at svimmel, har man ikke forstået noget af det. And DU's translation? This is entirely her own without scripting from me or use of te internets. If you can grasp quantum mechanics without getting dizzy, you didn't grasp anything at all. We're so proud. Point is, quantum mechanics is a real pain in the ass conceptually, even to those who figured it out in the first place. So here again, we're only going to be able to offer the most surface gloss on these concepts, both due to the limits of our audience's attention span and due to our total lack of expertise. But let's try to barrel through this incredibly strange story. It arose initially out of very odd results from efforts to address a long-standing dispute about whether light behaves as a particle or a wave. It turns out there are some extremely confusing things that happen when you perform what has come to be known as the double-slit experiment. At the time, i.e. the beginning of the 19th century, there were very good reasons to believe light was a particle, because Newton's incredibly robust, well-supported, and generally badass laws of motion indicated it should be. But some other observers thought it behaved in many instances more like a wave. But of course, the thing is, it had to be one or the other, right? Well, I mean, obviously. So way back in 1801, Thomas Young sought to prove that light was a wave, as his experiments with sound had led him to conclude, and not a particle per Newton. There's a super useful and surprisingly lucid, considering the subject matter, series on YouTube produced by PBS and called Space Time, 
Since they're clearly better at this than we would be, we're going to let them take it from here as we explore the extremely surprising ways that Young's original experiment gradually transformed into a series of shocking results. A source of light passing through two very thin slits produces bands of light and dark stripes, alternating regions of constructive and destructive interference on a screen. Of course, we now know that light is a wave in the electromagnetic field, thanks to the work of James Clerk Maxwell a century later. So it makes perfect sense that it should produce an interference pattern, right? But wait. We also know that light comes in indivisible little bundles of electromagnetic energy called photons. Einstein demonstrated this through the photoelectric effect. So each photon is a little bundle of waves, waves of electromagnetic field and each bundle can't be broken into smaller parts. That means that each photon should have to decide whether it's going to go through one slit or the other. It can't split in half and then recombine on the other side. But here, we get to one of the craziest experimental results in all of physics. The interference pattern is seen even if you fire those photons one at a time. If you keep firing those single photons, you start to see our interference pattern emerge once again. This is so bizarre. This pattern has nothing to do with how each photon's energy gets spread out. Each photon dumps all of its energy at a single point. No, the pattern emerges in the distribution of final positions of many completely unrelated photons. How can that be? Each photon has no idea where previous photons landed or where future photons will land. Yet each photon reaches the screen knowing which regions are the most likely landing spots and which are the least likely. It knows the interference pattern of a pure wave that passed through both slits equally, and it chooses its landing point based on that. Get that? No? Fair enough. And once again, this is definitely one of those topics where the limitations of an audio-only format feel acute. Essentially, these experiments unexpectedly proved that even when scientists fired individual photons, which you could think of as sort of light particles and which shouldn't behave like a wave at all, each individual photon would impact on the screen based on the same interference pattern you see when you fire a beam of light, which does behave like a wave. If you still don't get it, check the show notes where we'll have plenty of links, including to the very video you were just listening to. Suffice it to say, this makes no conventional sense. Let's start with what we do know about the double slit result. We know where the particle is at both ends. It starts its journey wherever we put the laser and it releases its energy at a well-defined spot on the screen. So the particle seems to be more particle-like at either end, but wave-like in between. That wave holds the information about all the possible final positions of the particle, but also about its possible positions at every stage in the journey. In fact, the wave must map out all possible paths that the particle could take. We have this family of could-be trajectories from start to finish. And for some reason, when the wave reaches the screen, it chooses a final location. And that implies choosing from these possible paths. So what causes this transition between a wave of many possibilities and a well-defined thing at a particular spot? From these experiments arose two different explanations, each of which is its own real pain in the ass. 
we'll let space-time explain the first. Let's talk about the view favoured by Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr, who pioneered quantum mechanics at the University of Copenhagen in the 1920s. The Copenhagen interpretation says that the wave function doesn't have a physical nature. Instead, it's comprised of pure possibility. It suggests that a particle traversing the double-slit experiment exists only as a wave of possible locations that ultimately encompasses all possible paths. It's only when the particle is detected that a location and the path it took to get there are decided. The Copenhagen interpretation calls this transition from a possibility space to a defined set of properties, the collapse of the wave function. It tells us that prior to the collapse, it's meaningless to try to define a particle's properties. It's almost like the universe is allowing all possibilities to exist simultaneously, but holds off choosing which actually happened until the last instant. In the Copenhagen interpretation, that final choice of the experiment of the universe is fundamentally random within the constraints of the final wave function. But the second, weirder explanation is the many-worlds hypothesis. This one states that for each quantum wave function collapse, as in the double-slit experiment, both possibilities happen, each in a different reality. The most out-there version of this theory essentially posits that each time a wave function collapses, it creates two distinct universes, one where the photon went through one slit and one where it went through the other. Again, this is not the most popular interpretation, but it is, honest to God, still in the running as a potential explanation of this incredibly weird set of results. You'll also recall that this was the idea that underpinned the recent and excellent Into the Spider-Verse film. In your universe, there's only one Spider-Man. But there is another universe. It looks and sounds like yours, but it's not. That's not the most important thing, though. The most important thing is that these initial experiments, when combined with other weird results from various other physics supergeniuses in the early part of the 20th century, led to the development of an incredibly robust and reliable theory for how matter works at the smallest scales. A model that even now is so deeply and unsettlingly weird that it beggars human understanding. But because there are so many of these weird effects, and because we're so desperately out of our depth here, we are going to bring back an old friend to help us keep this thing moving along. Dana, unleash the lightning round. As long-time listeners will know, this means that we're limiting ourselves to two minutes to address each of these insanely complicated topics. Hopefully each of these concepts will make you think, wait, what? And assuming that's true, we once again implore you to look through any of the multitude of excellent resources we've compiled in our show notes. Now, let's synopsize some of the most subtle and interesting findings in modern physics. Schrodinger's cat. This one relates back to the Copenhagen interpretation of the double-slit experiments we heard about earlier. It refers to a thought experiment dreamed up by Erwin Schrodinger, an important Austrian quantum physicist in his own right, to illustrate how absurd certain elements of the theory look when applied at everyday space and time scales. He imagined taking a cat and placing it in a sealed box with a device that had a 50% chance of killing the cat in the next hour. At the end of that hour, he asked, what is the state of the cat? Common sense suggests that the cat is either alive or dead. But Schrodinger pointed out that according to quantum physics, at the instant before the box is opened, the cat is equal parts alive and dead at the same time. It's only when the box is opened that we see a single definite state. 
Until then, the cat is a blur of probability, half one thing and half the other. This seems absurd, which was Schrodinger's point. He found quantum physics so philosophically disturbing that he abandoned the theory he had helped make and turned to writing about biology. As absurd as it may seem, though, Schrodinger's cat is very real. In fact, it's essential. If it weren't possible for quantum objects to be in two states at once, the computer you're using to watch this couldn't exist. Recall, the idea behind the Copenhagen interpretation was that any quantum effect exists as both a wave and a particle until it's collapsed by the act of observing it. Schrodinger's point, then, is that while this kind of oddity seems a little easier to swallow when we're talking about it affecting indescribably small particles, it becomes far harder to deal with when you imagine an unobserved wave function determining whether or not an animal would die. Or, more accurately, when you imagine such a system pulling the whole apparatus, cat, box and all, into a state of quantum uncertainty, where the cat exists as both dead and alive until such a time as you open the box, i.e. observe the phenomenon and thereby collapse the wave. Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle Speaking of weird, Werner Heisenberg, one of the fathers of quantum theory, established back in 1927 that there are certain attributes of particles that cannot be known simultaneously. The classic example is that the more accurately you know of a particle's position, the less you can know about its momentum. This one has frequently been a talking point for those who want to establish some sort of version of reality where conscious observers are creating that reality. A la Bishop Berkeley earlier, though for the modern popular version, imagine that slinger of horseship, Deepak Chopra, of which more later. When you get down to it, though, there's a pretty understandable reason for this, explained here by the one and only Neil deGrasse Tyson. I want to know where you are. So I turn on the lights and I say, there you are. All right. Now, let's make you tinier. Let's make you mini me. Okay. Like in the movie. Um, right. So now there's a tiny version of you. I turn on the lights. You're still there. Because if the lights are not on, I can't see you. I don't know where you are. Right. It's that simple. Okay. Okay. When you start becoming the size of molecules, right on down to the size of an atom, and I ask the question, where is the atom? And I turn on the light to see you there, because I think you're there. The light, the photon comes in, hits your atom, and pops you into another location. Mm. The very act of trying to measure your position prevents me from measuring your position. And it has have jack shit to do with your consciousness or your mind or your eyes or anything. It has to do with the fact that to know you're there, some information has to come from you to me. Like shining a light on you. And the smaller you are, the more susceptible you are to the, the, the energy of the light changing your position in space. Quantum entanglement. Remember about two minutes ago when we were talking about Schrodinger's cat? Those were the days. It turns out that infamous thought experiment was an attempt to illustrate a situation highlighted by Einstein and collaborators in a 1935 paper on that damned Copenhagen interpretation. So hot right now. One of the objections raised by the authors was that there could arise situations in which the spin... Which means a specific thing we don't understand in quantum physics. ...of two particles could be paired with each other, such that physics required the two would have opposite spins. For further weird quantum reasons, it turns out that this spin concept isn't really all that solidly established until it's measured. 
But the one thing you can definitively say about it, we're assured, is that when you measure one of the spins as being up, the other will definitely have a downspin. This is where Einstein's objection comes in. Remember, the speed of light is an absolute limit on how fast anything can travel in the universe. But, as Eman noted, if you take these two particles and send them to different locations, even several light years apart, then measure the spin of particle A, the spin of particle B would then have to be the opposite. Which seems to violate that aforementioned light speed limit, since this measurement would appear to determine the spin of particle B light years away instantaneously when you measured A. Which should be impossible. Unless, of course, something even fucking weirder was happening. Which, as it turns out, is indeed the case. That's right. In spite of the fact that, as Einstein established, nothing can move faster than light, it turns out that for these sorts of paired particles, measuring one instantaneously affects the other, even if they're separated by millions of light years. What the holy fuck? Yeah, I know. In his excellent book on this topic, appropriately titled Spooky Action at a Distance, science journalist George Musser explains it thus. The world we experience possesses all of the qualities of locality. We have a strong sense of place and of the relations among places. And yet, quantum mechanics and other branches of physics now suggest that, at a deeper level, there may be no such thing as place and no such thing as distance. Physics experiments can bind the fate of two particles together so that they behave like a pair of magic coins. If you flip them, each will land on heads or tails, but always on the same side as its partner. They act in a coordinated way, even though no force passes between them. And why is this the case? No fucking idea. Finally, let's consider... Virtual particles and a universe from nothing. The hits keep coming. No, no, hold off, boy. We need a little more time for this last one. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.